Coming to you direct from the heart of New York City, all the way to wherever you are, you're listening to the VIP Jaswal Report, where there is great love, there are always miracles. And our show today is about defeating the odds before they defeat you. We're all fortunate to live in a world that has progressed in so many ways, especially in the world of medicine. However, there seems to be a silent medical condition that seems to be emerging in our society and increasing at an alarming rate. I'm talking about autism. Over 2 million people in America are affected with this, and in recent years, autism has been increasing at a rate of up to 17%. Our guest today was diagnosed as a child with severe autism, but his parents refused to accept his condition as permanent and decided to fight medical opinion. Rather than battle the condition he was in, they embraced it, and the method they used allowed him to completely recover from autism. Since then, my guest went ahead in life from an IQ of 30 to graduating from an Ivy League university. He's the author of the book Autism Breakthrough, and it's my honor to bring to the show Ron Kaufman. Welcome, Ron. Hey, thank you for having me. Well, you know, I was doing some research on autism before I knew you were going to come on. And there seems to be so many different terminologies uh, referred, referring to autism. And, and I find uh, they're using behavioral disorder, complex disorder. Uh, but, but it seems, judging from your life story, more of a relational disorder. Am I right? That is exactly right. Uh, and you really hit the nail on the head because this actually goes to the heart of what's most misunderstood about autism. Uh, autism is really one of the most misunderstood disorders. It's treated like a behavioral disorder, which basically means oftentimes we see these kids, these special, unique, quirky kids, as a, a, a mass of behaviors. And our goal becomes how do we stamp out the unwanted behaviors and promote the wanted behaviors? But these behaviors are just symptoms. They're not causes. And so at its heart, autism is a social relational disorder, which basically means that these kids and adults have difficulty connecting with and communicating with and forming relationships with other people. When I was reading up about it, uh, there was one particular website that said they define it as a complex disorder of a brain development. Um, it's characterized by difficulties in social interaction, verbal and nonverbal communication, and repetitive behavior. So yeah. in a way... Your recovery was based on a relationship with your parents. So in a way, is it also an emotional disorder? Well, here's the thing, right? Autism, as, as you correctly described, autism is a neurological disorder. It is a brain disorder for sure, uh, although there's other facets to it for many children like digestive and immunological and nervous system issues. Mm. But with all of that said, the part of the brain that is most disrupted is the part that is responsible for forming relationships and for communicating and reading facial expressions, a whole host of other things. So the thing to, to really realize is that that means that we can change our children's neurology if we take the right approach. And unfortunately, what's normally done to help these kids is we try and fight our way in. We try and say, like, we just got to get this child to pay attention, and we've got to get them to stop doing the behaviors that are repetitive, etc. And all that does is drive the child further into his world and alienate him or her more. And what we've seen, and what my parents certainly experienced with me, is that rather than trying to force these kids to conform to a world that they don't yet understand, the best way forward is to join them in their world first. And that's what my parents began doing with me. That's where the Sunrise Program came about. 
that is exactly where the Sunrise Program came about. And, of course, I, I mean, I laugh a little because it, my parents called it the Sunrise Program and spelled it S-O-N, you know, because I was their son. But, of course, we work with many, many girls, as, almost as many as boys. Uh, but, yes, what they started with is, you know, my parents were told, as you said, I was going to be this way for the rest of my life. I was a really severe case, so I had no language at all, not one word, no eye contact, and I would spend hours and hours every day rocking back and forth, flapping my hands, and one of my favorite things to do was to take kitchen plates, Mm -hmm. and I would take a plate and I would spin it on its edge on the floor for hours and hours and hours, and my parents were told, well, look, the first thing you need to do is take the plate away redirect them, and even at times they were punishing and and inflicting painful things on many of these children in those days to stop them from doing these behaviors. And I'm really grateful because what my parents did, and my mom started by doing this, which is whenever she would see me spinning a plate, instead of taking the plate away, she'd get a plate of her own, sit down next to me, and spin plates with me. When I was reading all this, we keep looking at autism from the outside, Now, I want to ask you, I want to try and go inside uh, a a child that's maybe autistic and and see if you can remember what it was like being an autistic child. Do you remember having feelings of pain or being watched, being cared for? Can you share with us something about what it's like being in the mind and the body of an autistic child? Well, if I could, uh, first of all, I love that you want to do that because I actually think that that's what's missing in autism treatment. Mm -hmm. No one is looking at it from the inside out. Everyone's looking at it from the outside in, which is why we do all these things that are designed to help children but actually alienate them. So I'm very glad you're asking that question. I would like to, if I could, Vip, sort of answer that in two parts. So the first part is, is, is I could pull up any memories that I have. And unfortunately, I don't have a huge number of them. Now, keep in mind, my parents worked with me from age, approximately age two to age five, at which point I was fully recovered by the time I was five. So I don't have a huge amount of memory in that period, but I do have a little bit. For instance, the way I saw and heard things was very different. Uh, Oftentimes when I would look at someone's face, it would look like I was looking through the wrong end of a pair of binoculars. <laughs> I, I only know that in retrospect. I didn't feel that way at the time. But if you've ever looked back you know, through the wrong end of a pair of binoculars and the faces look tiny and far away, that's often how faces look to me. Um, sometimes things looked like they were moving, like a, a wall or even a bowl of food could look like it was moving and making shapes. I know that sounds very strange, but it's actually quite consistent with the sensory processing issues that children and adults with autism have. And then I do have some memories later on in my program. Mm -hmm. I say later on because I know I I remember speaking, so it means it was later in my program. But my mother was working with me, and it's so funny that for me, it really, honest to goodness, it just felt like my mom was playing with me and having fun with me. And so one of the things I most love about the Sunrise program is that when we work with these kids and when I've worked with these kids, we, the child's experience is not that, in, in a Sunrise program, is not that, oh, this person's working with me to help me build the skills that I'm missing. It's that someone's playing with me and enjoying me. And then in, in, the, in that process, there is a lot of learning and growth and development. But that's not what the child even focused on or aware of when we're working in this particular way. But the child does feel that a relationship is trying to be formed. And through that, they're developing positive emotions. Yes and no. Mm -hmm. 
the adult is aware that a relationship is trying to be formed. I don't, I'm not certain actually that the child would think of it in those terms, like, oh, this person's trying to bond with me. Um, I, although that is what's happening. That's absolutely what's happening. See, here's what's interesting. All of these behaviors that everyone's trying to stop, our children are doing those behaviors for very important reasons, two of which are they are because the part of their brain that organizes all of the sensory input, all of the things they see and hear, is not functioning properly. Their day-to-day experience, when they're just even just sitting in the living room, to say nothing of going to the supermarket, their experience is that everything's coming all the sights, all the sounds, all the smells is coming at them at super high volume and in a totally disorganized way. It's almost like they're spending every day in the middle of an airport or Grand Central Station. And so that's one issue. The other issue is that they have trouble recognizing patterns that seem obvious to us. So oftentimes things that seem very predictable and normal to us seem completely random and haphazard to our kids. And so our children are not behaving abnormally. They're actually behaving normally in response to this abnormal situation that they're facing. No. And so all of all of these repetitive behaviors that they have, the hand flapping, the ripping paper, the yeah. repeating phrases, is actually an attempt to self-regulate and to, to finally start to get some equilibrium, which involves tuning out that sensory overload and creating a little island of predictability in this sea of unpredictability. Well, was being repetitive a serene experience for them? I'm so glad you asked it that way because the answer is yes. The, uh, many people call these repetitive behaviors stims. Uh, we don't actually call it that, but many people do because it's, it's shorthand for self-stimulating behavior. But in fact, that's incorrect. It's not self-stimulating behavior. It's self-calming behavior, and that's what it's designed to do. So the last thing you want to do is try to disrupt and redirect that while it's happening. So let me get this right. If you were not spinning plates, the whole world would seem to be going round in a spin. But yeah. by you spinning plates, you've actually begun to focus on something, and that calms the rest of the world around you. That's a, You know what? That is a great way of putting it. I might say it a little differently, but I love that. That sounds great. I would be behind that. Does autism, children, do they respond to feelings and emotions? How, how do you mean respond? Accepting. They're knowing when the mother's love is there. They're knowing when someone who's playing with them is trying to be friendly. Uh, I see. I see. Okay. That's or or take it the other way. If the mother is frustrated at the lack of response from the child, can they detect that the mom is frustrated or annoyed? Yes. Well, this an important question because people think that because children and adults with autism have difficulty with a lot of social cues like recognizing an exact facial expression or uh, certain social cues, they think that because of that, they are totally disconnected and tuned out to all of the feelings and emotions that the neurotypical community has. And this is, a, this is totally incorrect. Actually, what we see over and over again mm-hmm. is that, and keep in mind, we work with thousands of children, tens of thousands of families from over 80 different countries for over 35 years. What we see is that what actually is happening is that because these kids are in a world that's so unpredictable to them, they are constantly tuned in to whether a person around them, their parents, a therapist, a teacher, seems agitated and, and, and sort of disrupted 
or whether that person seems welcoming and accepting and relaxed. Mm-hmm. And this makes a this is why, in addition to teaching, when, when parents come to the Autism Treatment Center of America, which is our, our center, it's a nonprofit organization, and they learn the Sunrise Program, we do teach them a lot of techniques, like that joining technique we talked about earlier, but we also spend a lot of time helping parents and educators with their own attitudes and frustrations and emotions because these kids are very attuned to that. And if they are with someone who seems agitated or frustrated or stressed, they will see that as a threat and they will either dive deeper into their own world or they will become more aggressive and tantruming. And yet when they're with someone who seems really welcoming and delighted and relaxed, they see that as safe and they will they will come out of their world and they will climb mountains for you. It's incredible to watch. So they have a great level of intuition. They do. They really do. I want to discuss the uh, socio-geographic aspect of uh, the autism. Center for Disease Control and Prevention, they put the incidence of autism at 1 in 50, and that level of autism in society is increasing. You know, uh, you have 2 million people in the U.S., tens of millions of people worldwide. Yes. The rate is increasing. I'm not sure why is autism being analyzed by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. It's not a disease. You know, (laughs) I have never been asked that question, but it's a spectacular question. Uh, Here's the thing. It's not a disease in in the typical sense, right? right? The way that measles is a disease, right? Yes. And it, it is a neurological disorder, but, you know, the Centers for Disease Control tries to take responsibility for looking at any types of uh, national health issues. You see what I mean when I said I was yeah. doing some research and I couldn't, I, I could see what was happening. And what was happening was even within the established articles that were on the web, they were having trouble trying to define it using right terminology. Uh, that is Nobody uh, called it a disease, but the, uh, the irony is it's the Center for Disease Control that's actually putting out the stats. Yes. Well, that brings up a bigger issue with autism, which is and, and this, I'm glad this it gets talked about because we don't normally it doesn't get talked about, which is this issue of there are all these kids that could really use our help and all these parents who love their kids and want to help their kids. Right. But there are also kids and adults with a high functioning type of autism called Asperger's syndrome yeah. uh, who actually are love their differences, are proud of their differences and have an incredible amount to contribute to the world because of their differences. So. Uh, we one of the things that I love about the Sunrise Program is it is designed, on the one hand, to help us to help our kids to get as far as they can possibly go, as much as they use their whole potential. But on the other hand, it's not trying to stamp out who they are. And this is the problem with this behavioral approach to autism that is still the norm, even all these decades later. I want to bring you back, though, to the social aspect of it, and then I want to take you back to where you're going. Sure. Um, which race has it most? You know what? Honest to goodness, it, is, it doesn't distribute like that. It, it, it doesn't discriminate. Races. It does not discriminate all races, uh, creeds, ethnicities. Now, it, it does discriminate by gender. It does, okay. Uh, there are, yeah, there are many more boys, over four times more boys with autism than girls. So, um, well, the stats I got was one in 40 boys. And one in 200 girls are autistic. Yeah, I mean, I heard one in 42 boys. But yes, you have the right idea, sure. Um, there is, it's definitely much more prevalent in boys. There is no, to, to head off your next question, Biff, um, 
no one has come up with the ultimate reason for why that is yet. There are a lot of very intelligent people mm -hmm. looking into that, but we don't know yet. And geographically, which countries have it most? Well, that I can answer. It definitely is more prevalent in the developed nations. The U.S., the U.K., throughout Europe, uh, it's, more, it's, it's got similar statistics in all those countries. It varies a little bit, but there's similarities. Uh, the developing countries have much lower incidences of autism, as do the Amish in the United States. So it does appear that there is something environmental at work here. Well, you know, I'm not an expert, but is it because of the food we eat? We eat because there's not a single thing I consume in a given day that doesn't have a chemical on it. Even our water has chemicals. Yes. Well, here's the thing. Right? And you're there's saying that it's not socioeconomic. It's evenly distributed. Yes, although it is socioeconomic in the sense mm -hmm. that it affects developed countries much more. So there's something we're doing in the developed countries that is raising the incidence of autism. It's not intentional. We all love our kids. We're all trying to help our kids. So I, I'm not a conspiracy theory guy. I, I think whatever's happening is completely accidental, and I don't think there's a single cause like it's one chemical in the food or it's one thing that's happening. I think we're increasing the chemical load on our kids at an earlier age. And the kids who are then susceptible, which is maybe 1% to 2% of the population who have very sensitive immune systems, these kids, those kids have an increased chemical load at an early age. And, and there is a lot of evidence that those kids who are sensitive, which, like I said, is only 1% to 2% of the population, but, but that's a lot. Those kids who are sensitive, uh, if they have an environmental insult or an environmental trigger in the first two to two and a half years of life, right. Some of those children who would just grow up to be sensitive, slightly different people can cross over and be diagnosable on the autism spectrum because of that trigger. So there's something happening. But like I said, there is not just one trigger, and there are a lot of people a lot smarter than me trying to find the answer as to what all these triggers are. Because even if, you, even if you look at, at, at the kids these days, they're more, they have more cases of allergies. I don't remember having a lot of allergies or my friends having a lot of allergies when I was young. But now allergies it, it, are much more common than they were 30 years ago and 50 years ago. That is absolutely true. Now, why, why do the Amish community have the least case of autism? That's an important question to answer. And like I said, there's a lot of people a lot smarter than me working on that. But I do want to say this, that we don't need to, I mean, somebody needs to work on that. That's a crucial question. But we, as in me and the staff at the Autism Treatment Center of America and Sunrise Program facilitators and teachers, we don't need to know what causes each individual case in order to be able to help these kids now. And what I don't want to happen is us to get so focused, us as a culture, I mean, mm -hmm. to get so focused on the cause that we don't help the millions of children right now and the millions of families right now who are facing autism. And my mission in my life is to help the kids who have autism right now. And that's actually why I wrote my book, Autism Breakthrough. I wrote it to give parents and educators a new roadmap forward to help their kids in a real way and in a way that actually has long-term benefit and that isn't the same old, same old. Now, can those who recover from autism go back to being autistic? Yes and no. I mean, mostly no. I mean, by and large, I would say no, except there is a key sort of window of time. Anyone who, uh, if 
the, the movie about my story, mm-hmm. uh, which came out in 1980 and was aired on NBC television. Right. Uh, which it was called it was called Sunrise: A Miracle of Love, but it, they did a really good job actually of following the story. And uh, people can even still buy it on Amazon. But the reason I, I tell you about it is because in that movie and in the book and what really happened is that I had recovered about 90%. Like I had gone most of the way. I was speaking in sentences. I was communicating. I still had some, some challenges. And then one day my parents came to work with me and I had gone all the way back to the beginning, literally like no language. I was spinning plates again. And this was a real test for my parents, actually, if they could walk their talk. Because they could have had a meltdown, which Lord knows would be perfectly understandable. But they were like, no, we're going to do what we know to do. We're going to enter his world again. We're going to show him that it's okay where he is. And they did it again. And then a few months later, I came all the way back again. So there was a crucial window while that's happening where kids can move back and forth. But once a child is like all the way recovered and once I was all the way recovered, it's not like we've ever seen a case of, you know, some child who's been recovered for years suddenly becoming on the autism spectrum again. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, when I read your book, you were talking about repetitive behavior and you would you were talking about the plates you used. Uh, it yeah. made me wonder because does every human being have a certain percentage of autism? And, I'm, and I'll tell you why I'm going with this. Sometimes uh, if I'm at work, uh, I'll stare at the screen and keep playing with my pen. Same motion again and again and again. I find it quite serene. I'm doing nothing. Uh, this is all repetitive behavior. Isn't this some sort of a sign of a small bit of autism? <laughs> well, you know, I love that you brought that up because, again, once we see, once we can see echoes of our kids in ourselves, yeah. it'll help us to understand our kids more and not to try and push them and stamp what they're doing out, which I think is the biggest mistake that gets made. So the short answer to your question is yes, we all have a, a little tiny bit of something that you could call on the autism spectrum that we do. We like to do certain repetitive things that help to calm us. But here's the difference. The difference is, is that if I come up to you while you're doing that and I say, hey, Vip, want to see a movie? You're then going to turn to me and say, yes, I do, or no, I don't, or whatever. But you'll immediately engage with me because... I will engage with you, but I will be disturbed. Of course, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to tell you about it, but I've just yes. found my serene spot. I so hear you. I I hear you, and I know you'd be disturbed. But the difference is even though you'd be disturbed, and even though you may prefer I'd have waited a little longer before calling your name, Mm -hmm. still you hear me call you and you can connect right up to me. And for a lot of our kids, they're having to do the behavior intensively enough, and they're deep enough in their own world that they can't just shift gears like that when we call their name. And plus, again, there's all this other stuff about the way that their brain is processing everything they see, everything they hear, and all social cues that is making it harder for them to decipher people and the world. And it's, it's really difficult for a lot of these kids at first to really hear people, to connect with people. I mean, a lot of these kids have very low eye contact because looking into someone's eyes is an extremely bonded, intimate thing to do. Well, here's an uh, analogy that... The- after hearing from you, you what, what you're saying is it's almost like a, a floor plan of a house. How do you Regular mean? people have an open floor plan. Okay, so if you come into the room, I see you and, and I can talk to you, okay? Yeah. The autistic children have a, a floor plan that's compartmentalized. So if someone's 
come and, and disturb their routine or repetitive behavior. They have to go into the other room to go actually go and, and connect with them. Yes, we have to go into their room with them. That is abs- that's the biggest overlooked area of autism treatment. We have to go into their room or their world to connect with them on their terms rather than trying to force them to conform to our terms. Does and autism become more or less severe with age? Uh, there's no answer. I mean, neither. It, it completely depends on a million things, so there's no one answer to that. And that's uh, why they've I- been using that word spectrum. I keep reading yeah, that well, word because obviously the autism is unique in every case. It is unique. They, they have this saying, if you've seen one child with autism, you've seen one child with autism. And that's very true because every child is different. Some children speak. Some children don't. Some children really love the wheels of tiny cars. Some children really love pictures of elephants. So everything's very different. Each child has their own unique world, their own unique motivation, and that is why in the Sunrise program, that's why we customize it to each child. We focus on each child's individual motivation and interest, and we use that as our doorway, not only to communicate, but to start to then help them cross the bridge to our world and learn things that might at first be difficult for them. Now, with the Sunrise program, you accommodate children at every level of autism. We do. We have children. And it's not the same approach. It's the same overall approach, but it is absolutely customized to the child. We Look, we have children who are totally nonverbal, mm-hmm. and we have children who are very highly verbal. We have three-year-olds, and we have 33-year-olds, literally. And so um, we could, because we're able to aim it at where the child is, because we're not trying to squeeze them into a little cookie-cutter box, um, that's what enables us to help the kids so much. And, and, and i got to say this, too, that a lot of people ask, is there an age after which it's too late? And uh, most parents are told an unequivocal yes to that question, which you have to imagine is very, very scary for a lot of parents. But unfortunately, it is, they're being told something that's not true. Uh, we see this contradicted every single day. And what I mean by that is we, we work with two-year-olds, of course, but we also work with 22- and 32-year-olds. And we had – I'll just give you an example. We had a, a 33-year-old I talked about in my book uh, in, in Autism Breakthrough. I talk, Actually, the last chapter of Autism Breakthrough, I talked about this guy. And he was 33, spent his entire life in an institution in England. His mother flies over to us. We're in, we're in Sheffield, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. We have a whole campus where parents stay for the week to learn the program. She then flies back. She takes a program called The Startup, which teaches her everything she has to do. She flies back to England. She takes him out of the institution. She starts the Sunrise program with him at 33. Now, at this time when she starts, he's saying a few single words, has pretty much no eye contact, and does repetitive behaviors most of the time. Eighteen months later, he is speaking in six to ten word sentences, having conversations. His eye contact is at this level, a, a typical level. And he's only doing those repetitive behaviors for a small percentage of his day. So, and that's only in 18 months and only starting at age 33. So what we see is that the brain is plastic throughout the lifespan. Another thing I notice is there seems to be a lot of telling the parents what to do and what not to do. In your case, you were told you'll never speak, you'll never go to college, you'll never play a sport or fall in love or drive a car. Uh, and, sure. and the best you'd be able to do is to dress yourself and use a spoon. Yes. It seems your Sunrise program is in a way battling the medical profession. 
Is we're it right or wrong for every parent to be told what their child can or cannot do? I mean, you're, you're, you're starting off putting limits on, on how the child can progress. Yes, and you know what that is? That talks that to the difference between the diagnosis and the prognosis. The diagnosis can be quite useful and quite important. And in fact, in, in reality, by the way, Vip, most parents are six to 12 months ahead of the diagnosticians in terms of the diagnosis anyway. So oftentimes the diagnosis is a vindication, if anything. But then we have something which is the prognosis, which is the prediction about all the things our children are supposedly never going to do for the next 50 years. And Vip, this is, it's crazy. It's literally just a made-up story. It's a wild guess. And and yet parents are told this as if, as if it's like the universal truth and it's what's going to happen. And what we do, and, and I feel really strongly about this. I mean, this is the reason I wrote Autism Breakthrough is because what we see is that we, we will never decide in advance what a child is not going to be able to do. You know, of course, we don't make promises about what a child will do because we don't know. But we never decide what a child is not going to do because we want to give each child every chance that's what led to my life and in truth every parent wants this no no parent is wants to give up on their child and yet they're encouraged to do this at every turn and we're oftentimes the first people they come to when they come to the autism treatment center of america who say you know what you don't want to give up on your child you're right to not want to give up on your child you don't have to apologize for believing in your child when no one else does because your child is capable of more now, you called your book Autism Breakthrough as opposed to Autism Cure. That is correct. Well, what is the vital difference? What are you breaking uh, you know through? I, I love that question. I'm glad you asked that. Um, and, and, and I was very deliberate about the title, and you're absolutely right. I could have, I, the, the publisher actually at one point wanted a title like Autism Cure. Mm -hmm. um, and here's, here's my, my perspective on this. Number one, I actually don't really use the word cure because it's become a very politicized word that a lot of people think seems to be that if someone uses that word, they're saying there's some sort of magic pill that recovers all children, which, of course, there isn't. Um, however, I do believe in, I don't just believe in it, I've seen it hundreds of times, uh, full recovery, meaning for some kids, not for every child, given, given the right intervention, and, and I've seen this with the Sunrise Program, that they have gone on, I know personally many kids who've gone on to make full recoveries. Now, let me just say one last thing, though, and this is why I didn't call the book Autism Cure or Autism Recovery, is because we treat, we feel like at the Autism Treatment Center of America, the only ethical standpoint is to treat every single child as capable of recovery. That doesn't mean we know they're going to recover. And so what, what that means is for those kids that don't end up recovering fully, which are many for sure, Though even those kids can get so much farther than the original prognosis when the adults in their lives are not the ones holding them back. And so when I called the book Autism Breakthrough, I meant, look, there's a, there's, a, there's a method here that a lot of people don't know about, principles in the Sunrise Program that anyone can use that can give your child a breakthrough and often take your child far beyond the original prognosis, whether that means full recovery or near recovery or simply just dramatic progress, I see all three of those options as total victories and something to be proud of. So I, I don't want to set it up that the only sort of success means if your child turns out like me. I just think our children are capable of more, and let's not us, as the people who love our kids, let's not us be the ones who are holding them back. But how do you judge a success in autism? 
that's a great question because oftentimes, again, people will are fed cookie-cutter definitions of success. And, and truly, in the Sunrise Program, we don't have a cookie-cutter definition. What we see as success is uh, being able to bond with your child first and foremost, which most people don't know how to do if their children are on the spectrum because they're never shown. And what's the and, form of a bonding? Is it eye contact? Is it touch? Actually, it is both of those things. It, it's eye contact. It's touch. It's sharing a smile. It could be then having a conversation. It's knowing how to relate to your child. It's um, not seeing your child as some sort of damaged soul, but as a unique individual that has key differences and unique pieces that are wonderful and should be celebrated, and that's also capable of being quite successful in our world if given a chance. And so when, when I say, say success, I mean, I can't think of any parent I've worked with where I would say they failed or their child failed. Because every child that I've seen makes, makes progress and their parents learn to connect with them. And that's so exciting. That feels really successful to me. I mean, look, if you ask a parent who has a child with autism, what keeps them up at night? I promise you this. It is not that their child is behind in math or that their child isn't reading or any of that nonsense. That's important, but that's not what keeps parents up at night. What keeps parents up at night is you know, will my child ever say I love you to me and really mean it? Will they know that I love them? Will they be able to laugh at a joke because they really think it's funny? Will they be able to enjoy another person? And the answer that we always provide is, yes, those things are absolutely possible. It's also the math and reading are possible. We've helped many kids do that. But that's not what, the, that's not what families are really worried about. That's not what gives our life its richness. What are the common mistakes parents and family do or make with autism oh, in your yes. experience? Well, yes, I've seen many of them. But, but keep in mind, the reason they're making these common mistakes, and I'll tell you them in a second, is not because they don't know what they're doing or they don't know how to help their kids. Or, it's because they're actually force-fed exactly the least helpful things to do, and they're told that they have to do them. I have personally worked with hundreds of parents who've said this exact quote to me, like hundreds of them, who said, I know, you know, it feels terrible when I'm forcing my child to do this repetitive, you know, prescribed task over and over again and telling him no. Let me interrupt you right there. You said prescribed path, which normally comes from the medical professionals, right? It, I would say it comes from the conventional autism treatment professionals, yes. It, so are you it, running into constant battle with them? Um, you know, I wouldn't call it battle because to, you t it takes two sides to have a battle. Um, I would say, look, we're just busy helping people that want to be helped, and they want to be helped by us. I don't begrudge anybody for doing it the conventional way. I really don't. No, but no, no. Yes. It's not about you. But if I was a parent, and obviously I'm going to look for the best treatment for my child, yeah, I have to decide because I'm getting so many different opinions. Yes. Someone says this, somebody says that, everyone's got a success rate, everyone's got a success history. That's what would keep me up at night. Uh, I, I hear that. Let me just say, let me answer your question, is the behavior modification programs, behavior-based programs, where the idea, again, is behavior change, stamp out some behaviors, get other behaviors. Those, those the, the proponents of that, some, and I don't want to paint everyone with the same brush because I don't feel like it's that way, but some parts of that community mm -hmm. have definitely been hostile to the principles of the Sunrise Program because, let's face it, it's the opposite of what they're doing and what they've learned to do. Mm -hmm. um, now, I have really clear reasons why I've seen what 
that method not be helpful or cause others lots of side effects that people don't want in their children, everything from robotic behavior to tantrums to children being able to learn how to say please and thank you, but not how to, add a, not how to actually relate to people. And let me just come back to your other question, Vip, because what I think happens is, is parents are told to do X and Y with their child. Right. Sit him in a chair, and you have to make sure he stays in the chair for a half an hour. And then you have to have him name his colors, and you have to keep doing it until he can correctly name the color red. Right? And parents tell me, because I know, they, they, they tell me, I hate doing this. It feels horrible, but I'm told this is the only way I can help my child. So even though it doesn't feel right to me, I have to do it. And so I feel like parents oftentimes have the right instincts underneath all of that. Uh, oftentimes, if you look deep into the Sunrise program, it taps into very basic parental instincts of ways to bond and connect with their child. Actually, if you think about this, Human beings have been forming bonds and connections for thousands of years by being interested, by, by sharing a common interest. And when we join children in their supposedly autistic behaviors, what we are doing is we're bonding with each child based on their common interest. And that, that creates a connection, and, and the child starts to trust us. And when they trust us, they will cross rivers for us. It's amazing, not because we're forcing it not because we're pushing them and not even because we're offering them rewards like pieces of candy, but because they actually want to connect with us. And that is, I got to tell you, that's every parent's dream. Well, I think that's your biggest selling point for the Sunrise program because it's emotional and relational. That's and right. that every that's human being can relate to. Yes. When and I read your book, I though, you know, some of the things your parents witnessed for cures, like kids being given electric shocks, being tied to chairs, being put in dark rooms. I mean, it was horrific. Yes. And can I, can I just head off an objection that I may hear from one of your listeners, which is someone might say, yes, yes, they used to electric shock kids and tie them to chairs. But, you know, uh, it's so much gentler now. We don't do stuff like that. And for the most part, that's true. Uh, by the way, there are still some places that do that, that electric shock kids. But, but I would agree, for the most part, that is not happening anymore. However... The, the basic paradigm underneath that, mm -hmm. which is, again, stamp out some behaviors, promote other behaviors, is exactly the same as it was in the 1970s when I was a kid. And you know, I, electric shock is an electric shock. You're saying some places still do that. Uh, there is actually a place in my home state of Massachusetts that does that. Can you enlighten me? What's the objective there? The objective is to get kids to stop doing dis supposedly disruptive behaviors by shocking them when they're doing those behaviors, and then eventually, supposedly, the kids learn not to do the behaviors because every time they do it, they get shocked, and it's really unpleasant getting shocked. I mean, I, I, So if I was to take this device home, I'll be running around after the kid and sort of prodding uh, him every time he does something. Uh, no. Oh, sorry. No, they don't have to prod the child because each child is wearing a, a remote-controlled vest. So actually, you have something in your pocket, and you can press a button. Oh, my God. I know. It's, it's hard for me to believe, actually, that it's still happening. But let me, let me say, I do want to be clear, that this one place in Massachusetts does that. No, no, I'm just surprised that it's allowed, technically. That's all. I can't believe it's allowed. It's, I just cannot believe it. I, I mean, it just, but, but I do want to say, because I know a lot of people listening will say, you know, nothing like that has ever been done to my child, which I think is wonderful. But again... The, uh, the paradigm is still the same. It's still based on, and I, I'm going to be a little controversial here when I say this, but this is the truth. 
It's still based on the behavior, the behavior-based methods that were originally pioneered by Skinner. And his whole pioneering way, this is way back decades ago, was all about, he pioneered, he did animal training, that's how he started, and he would show that through rewards and lack of rewards and everything, you could get animals and eventually people to do anything, mm-hmm. and that it, their internal process, how that feels on the inside, his argument was that that's not really terribly relevant, how they're feeling on the inside, because we can get them to do anything on the outside. And, and again, this is still applied as the dominant paradigm in autism, and it is, it, I got to tell you, it does not feel nice for these kids, but it also doesn't feel nice for many of the parents. Again, they're doing it mostly because they feel like they have to. And I wrote Autism Breakthrough to show parents you don't have to. There's another way. There's a roadmap. You can, like, read this book. And I walk parents through exactly what to do to get their kids to an even better, to an even more progressing place, but without ever having to push your child, pull your child, stop your child, yell at your child, or do any of the things that people feel forced to do. Well, share with us a story of, say, one of the cases which turned out to be severe, but you turned it around. Oh, my gosh. Well, one of the things I was really loved about writing Autism Breakthrough is, you know, each chapter has a different technique in it. Right. And then also in that, each chapter also has a specific story of a specific child that used that technique. So, I mean, we had, oh, there's so many stories. There's the, there's the child who actually would um, play with Legos all day, and, and, but hold it. he didn't play with them in a regular neurotypical way. He would make these little L-shaped figures and hold two, imagine two L-shaped figures out of Legos. He would hold them up in a, in a square shape, almost like he was holding a camera. Mm-hmm. And he would walk around the room, and his father, who loved him, um, you know, he would try and stop him and redirect him because it's what he was told to do. And this little boy never, never paid attention to his dad. I mean, never looked at his dad, never spoke to his dad. Uh, and when his father came to our center, the Autism Treatment Center of America, and he took the startup program, which is our, our week-long introductory training program, and he actually came to that program. That program actually come without your child. So he comes without his son. He takes a week. He learns all of this, including the first technique, which is you actually start by joining your son in the very Lego thing that everyone else is trying to stop him from doing. And I'll, I'll be honest, this dad was pretty skeptical about it at the beginning, but he agreed to try it. He goes home. He starts joining his son in this, in this behavior, and two amazing things happen. Number one, as he's doing it, he finally realizes what his son's getting out of it, which is that his son can see a reflection of his own face on the inside of, a, of this Lego square that he's built. And when he holds it up to the light and moves it around, it makes his face bigger and smaller. And his, his dad realizes this, and he's like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. And as soon as he realizes that, he turns to his son, who has dropped the Legos, and is staring in abject stupefaction at his father and just looking at him, and they share this moment. And the dad's so happy, he smiles, and his son smiles back, and he waves to his son, and his son waves back, and they share this amazing moment. And this was a big pivotal change point. This dad then kept doing that, by the way, Vip. And over the next five weeks, this little boy who was doing this for most of his day, five weeks later was doing it for less than an hour a day, that same behavior, without anyone ever stopping him. And he spent more and more time looking at his father, playing with his father, interacting with his father. So using that as an example, what would be the top three things that you would tell parents and their loved ones to consider in the approach to autism? Great. 
Number one, do not believe any prognosis that you're told about what your child is not going to do in the future. What your child has done in the past tells you nothing about what your child will do in the future. Your child had an unbelievable amount of capability. So the first thing is not to, not to buy into that, not to go down that road. So don't right? define the result. Yes. Believe, look, believe the diagnosis, but don't believe the prognosis. The prognosis is someone's prediction. It's a made-up prediction. It means nothing. So don't nothing. believe the limitations. That's right. You start with a clean slate. Give your child a chance the way my parents gave me a chance. So that's the first thing. The second thing is rather than trying to force your child to conform to your world and stopping behaviors and redirecting the so-called stims and the repetitive behaviors, start by joining those behaviors. Every time your child's doing something like that, Instead of stopping your child, actually do it with your child. Now, obviously, in, in my book, Autism Breakthrough, and at our center and in the Sunrise program, we help people how to do that. But I would say that's a starting point. And number three, number three is this. Start to look for the kinds of things that your child really loves, meaning does your child really love Teletubbies? Does your child really love Star Wars themes? Does your child really love Disney characters? Right. Whatever those things are, start to make a list of them, because once you have that list, you can pick up Autism Breakthrough or you can call our center and we can show you how to use those things to build activities that will teach your child new skills from speaking and verbal communication to, if they're already verbal, having conversations and having social interaction. So those are the top three steps, I would say. Do autistic children have special talents? Did you have a special talent? Well, first of all, I don't want to sound a hokey here, but I mean, we all have special talents to some degree. I, it is not the case, though, that all children on the autism spectrum are like Rain Man. You know, remember the movie Rain Man? Mm -hmm. It's not true that they all have what's called a savant skill where, you know, they can count how many toothpicks fall out of a box in a millisecond, right? right. Or they can memorize the entire phone book. There are many children on the autism spectrum who can do that, and there are even more, many more who do not have what many would call a special skill. Um, I had a special skill, but it was, I don't even know what you could call it a special skill, which is basically, uh, I was amazing at spinning things and I could balance and spin things that other people couldn't. So yeah. for instance, I could spin a shoebox on its corner and actually get it to spin, which I can attest to you, Vip, I cannot do that now. <laughs> I have tried, I cannot do it. But, but yes, all, you know, all of our kids, because they bring an extraordinary amount of focus mm -hmm. to whatever it is they're doing, they often can do things in their area of focus that many times we can't. And that's why it's not something to be stamped out or looked at with sadness or ridiculed or even redirected. It's something to be cherished, and, and it's a way to meet them on their level which makes lots, it's a platform for all education and growth. How can our listeners get in touch with you and the Sunrise Program? So two things. Number one, they can pick up Autism Breakthrough. They can go to Amazon. They can go to Barnes & Noble. They can pick it up at a bookstore. They can get it from us if they want. But get that book and read it because it will tell you exactly what to do. And it will give you like a really fun, hopeful view on your kid. You won't be able to see your kid the same way again after that. Secondly is if they go to autismtreatment.org. That's mm -hmm. autismtreatment.org. That's the website of our nonprofit organization, the Autism Treatment Center of America. Um, number one, there's just lots of free resources on that website. 
There is webcasts. There's seminars that they can take for free on that website. They can also, if they want, arrange for a half-an-hour call with a Sunrise Program Advisor, also free, by the way, where they can get all their questions answered and see if the Sunrise Program is a good fit for their child and get help getting to a Sunrise Program startup. And if a parent is in financial need and they're, in, they're struggling financially, right. we have money donated throughout the year just for this purpose. We gave away $1.7 million just last year. So if that's what you're concerned about, like if that's your big obstacle, don't worry. We can help you. Give us a call. Talk to one of our Sunrise Program advisors, and they can help you get the financial aid you need. So no matter what, I, I would have them do that. Get the book, go to the website, and then arrange for a call with us. Ron, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. That was a great discussion. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Your comments and your follow are so very welcome on my Twitter account at Vip Jaswal and my Facebook page, The Vip Jaswal Report. A special shout-out of thanks to my dream team, William Sanchez, Rick Buser, and Danea Williams. I'll be back next Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern with more fascinating stories that fill our lives with the inspiration and information we so need to kickstart the week. I wish you a wonderful evening tonight with your family and loved ones. And until next Sunday, have a productive and a happy week ahead. Music